Welcome to patreon.com slash allournonsense. My name is Derek. Howdy. How the hell are you guys doing? Happy Sunday. Um, it is... It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It's a Sunday. I'm recording this on a Sunday. Um, shout out to all my patrons. Thank you guys for staying with me. Uh, my number's actually fallen off a bit. Uh, I'm hoping to get those jumped back up, but you know, if not, we'll see what happens. I still love to make content, so I don't think I'll ever leave this platform. This is a you know, a platform for creators, and um, I consider myself a creative, and uh, I really enjoy just turning on this microphone and, and giving you guys, you know, a wealth of knowledge about the most random fucking topics. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I've seen a decline in my patrons and things like that, but it's not going to stop me because, again, I love this. I love to create. I want the tools to always be in the hands of the creators versus, you know, these these labels and like production houses and things like that um it's not hard guys to get you know go to amazon and purchase a microphone and audio interface or purchase a camera and some lights and things like that it's not hard at all we need to always make sure that we have the power because we are the ones speaking directly to the masses and then you somehow let some company come in and take a percentage or a share of something that you built and you created and to me, um, if it helps you out and it gets your, your message out to a wider audience, by all means, do what you want to do. But for myself, I don't want anybody else having control over the content that I create. And uh, I don't want them having control over how I convey my message to the masses. And the masses, is, I say that like in this very grandiose, like, you know, state or something like that. And like, it's a very confined unit of people who choose to subscribe to this Patreon and, and choose to uh, to entertain themselves with this content that I periodically put out there. So um, I just want to share that message. Um, I'm not go. I'm here. I'm not going any fucking where. You're not going to brush me off the mountain. I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to turn on this microphone and tell you how I feel about certain things. Most commonly, it's gaming. Uh, the weekend gaming, you can get that on Mondays. Um, and then there's film, art, television, pop culture, things like that. So, you know, stay tuned, tell your friends as well. Today's topic, this is part one of a three-part series about what I deem to be the greatest three albums to open anyone's career. In hip-hop by far. Um, if you heard my my uh, two-part podcast uh, probably about a month ago, I, I think like a month and a half ago, something like that where I talked about my favorite hip-hop groups of all time. Um, I'm still catching flack for that, by the way. And again, let me reiterate, I love Run DMC. They are the kings of this shit. And rest in peace to Jam Master J, of course. Um, Run DMC, the Beastie Boys, stuff like that. That's how I got into hip-hop music. But as I got older and started listening to more shit, yeah, it comes down to NWA, A Tribe Called Quest, Outkast, De La Soul, um... I forget who else is on the list, but, you know, if you want to hear that, you can go back into the archives and and uh, listen to those two episodes. But these next three episodes are going to focus on my favorite group from that list. And, of course, that's A Tribe Called Quest. I've told many of people, if you want to know anything about me, you should, you know, just get in your car and drive to University City, Missouri. That's number one. And number two, you should listen to Midnight Marauders by A Tribe Called Quest. Um, other than that, watch Cardinal Baseball, I guess. You know, um, but those things kind of embody who I am and, and what I represent. Uh, University City, obviously, is where I come from. It's my home. Uh, I, I have often said no matter where I go in the world, University City will be my home. It doesn't matter. I will always return there. Uh, eventually, I will settle there, and that's where my family and I will be. And when I create this content, just know that it's going to be recorded from somewhere uh near Midland Avenue in University City, Missouri. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Again, today we're talking about A Tribe Called Quest. This is part one of a three-part series. Again, I deem these to be the best three albums to open anybody's career. Uh, this is not a slight to Beats, Rhymes, and Life's Beats, Rhymes, and Life, and the Love Movement, or We Got It From Here. Thank you. Um, I love all the Tribe albums, but three, these three albums embody the greatest era in my in my opinion of hip hop and it's the greatest era of a tribe called quest by far uh 
Today we're going to start it off with obviously the first album of their career, People's Instinctive Travels and Passive Rhythm. Um, this is a very socially conscious record. Um, <clears throat> you know, when they came out, they were wearing dashikis and, and kente cloths and things like that, beaded, very tribal influence, very Afrocentric. A lot of people looked at them kind of fucking weird, right? Because this album came out in 1990. Uh, we're at the time where N.W.A. was the biggest shit on the planet in hip hop. Like N.W.A. introduced gangster rap. You credit Eazy-E, Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, all those guys with that. Uh, DJ Yola, MC Ren, they all deserve credit for that. They are gangster rap. And rest in peace to Eazy-E. Uh, it's really cr crazy because I was talking to a friend and it dawned on me that we lost like the architects of this hip hop shit. Three, three of the biggest members of the hip-hop community in consecutive years. We lost Eazy-E in March of 95. We lost Tupac in September of 96. And then we lost Biggie in March of 97. So that was a really, really crazy time. And uh, Eazy, unfortunately, succumbed to his battle with the HIV virus, uh, which he found out that he had not too long before he passed away. Tupac, of course, succumbed to uh, bullet wounds. He was shot on the Las Vegas Strip on September 6th of 1996. Um, he died seven days later on September 13th of 96. Biggie, of course, um, was shot in Los Angeles. He succumbed to bullet wounds. Um, by the time he got to the hospital, I think he had already passed away, if I remember correctly. But um, I remember that being like, that was I was a freshman in high school, uh, the fall of 96. And Tupac, obviously being murdered, was the biggest thing. And then that spring, you know, around spring break, Big gets murdered. And that was the biggest thing. That was like it like bookended my year like for school so i remember like having these conversations in homeroom like there was a time where everybody was like who do you think is next like it's really morbid that we were like 14 15 16 years old and we're like who do you think is going to get killed next but these were real conversations that we were having and um so when i think about the last time before everybody started pulling out guns in their records you have to think about tribe um so again People's Instinctive Travels and the Passive Rhythm, a seminal debut album that hasn't uh, aged a second, bursting with in inventiveness, color, and charm. It framed Q-Tip, Fife Dog, Ali Shahid Muhammad, and Jarobi, who would quit the band in 91 to attend culinary school. As one of hip-hop's most important groups, lyrically, it's extraordinary, tackling police brutality and high art, STDs, and veganism while freewheeling, giddy, creative ra uh, radiates off everything. It's most iconic moments, I left my wallet in El Segundo, can I Kick It? I would also say Benita Applebaum and some other records are its most spar and jazzy, while hip-hop is still yet to pin a love letter that tops Benita Applebaum. These, of course, are the editor's notes, editor's notes from Apple Music. The album was produced entirely by A Tribe Called Quest. The production was handled by Q-Tip and Ali Shai Muhammad. Uh, in totality, its length is 64 minutes and 15 seconds. It was recorded between 1989 and 1990. It was released April 10th of 1990. Personnel on the album, Q-Tip, Performer, Production, and Mixing. Uh, Ali Shahid Muhammad, Muhammad, Scratching and Programming. Fife Dog, Performer, Jerobi White, Performer. Lucian, Background Vocals. Bob Power was the engineer. He did a phenomenal job. Bob Power, obviously... Uh, was the engineer on the first three Tribe albums. I'd have to check the credits for Beats, Rounds, and Real Life. Um, Shane Farber, also an engineer. Tim, Tim Latham uh, also was an engineer on the Low End Theory, if I'm not mistaken. That'll be the second part of this series. Uh, Bob Coulter, engineer. Anthony Saunders, engineer as well. And Cool DJ Red Alert, the fucking legend, management and executive producer. Uh, Red Alert, very, very important to the... Um, to the success of not only Tribe, but other members of the Native Tongues. Uh, they all speak with him with so much reverence, especially Moni Love. He happened to be the uncle of one of the Jungle Brothers, I can't remember. And, um, of course, Q-Tip and Ali met in high school. They were in, uh, met, eh, went to Murray Bergstrom in Manhattan. They met, and they met uh, uh, Africa and Baby Bam, Africa Baby Bam and, and Mike G from the Jungle Brothers. The, uh, the Jungle Brothers there as well, and I can't remember which one of them it is, but one of their uncles is actually Red Alert. So, um, that's how that part of the story goes. As far as the other members of the group, Q-Tip and Fife, rest in peace, who unfortunately uh, lost a long battle with diabetes in March of 2016. 
Um, I've gone on record multiple times as saying if they were to do a tribe biopic, I would love to play Fife Dog, but the group has said that they would not be doing that. So alas, you won't see me make like my big screen debut in the tribe film. But if it happens, I'm holding out hope. I will send an audition tape if you guys want one. Anyway, I digress. Um, Tip and Fife went all the way back to like the age of two. They went to church together. They played like little league ball together. Um, Jerobi uh, was actually introduced to uh, to Fife through a mutual friend, and they actually did not exactly like each other originally. And um, the friend kind of got them together in an arcade, and he was like the go between. And as they started talking more, the friend slipped out the door, and they're talking and not even realizing that this mutual friend of theirs is there is no longer there. I'm sorry. And you know he's like. I think uh, Jerobi was like asking Fife, do you play basketball? He's like, of course I play basketball. So they went to the local park and while they were sitting there, you know, when you're in the park and you're waiting, you got to call next. And uh, Jerobi started beatboxing and Fife started rapping and the rest, as they say, is history. And of course, Tip and Fife go back to the age of two. Tip went to high school in Manhattan. He met Ali and then they formed together to create, in my opinion, one of the greatest hip hop groups of all time. Um, <clears throat> so, album notes, People's Instinctive Travels and Passive Rhythm is the debut studio album by American hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest, released on April 10th of 1990 on Jive Records. After forming the Native Tongues Collective and collaborating on several trap, uh, several projects, A Tribe Called Quest began recording sessions for People's Instinctive Travels in late 1989 at Calliope Studios with completion uh, reached in early 1990. The album's laid-back production encompassed a diverse range of samples which function as a template for the group's unorthodox lyrics. So here's the thing. Back when we were recording, or when they were recording on Real to Real, I was right short of eight years old. Uh, yeah, this is April 20, uh, of 1990. My birthday is June. So yeah, this is... I was seven when this album came out. Or, what am I saying? Yeah, yeah, I was seven. Seven, almost eight. I'm sorry. I'm 38 now, so, like, dates are starting to escape me, and uh, I'm trying to eat healthier, and uh, I'm still exercising and stuff like that. Um, I'm kicking Father Tom's ass, if you haven't heard me say that multiple times on this podcast, but, you know. So, some dates kind of escape me. I'm like, when is my birthday? But, yeah, June 10th, 1982. So, I'm just short of my eighth birthday when this comes out, and um, I remember my uncle playing push it along which is the first song on the album and my uncle's nine years older than me so at this point i'm seven so you know he's a teenager and um i was blown away it was and push it along like there's nothing like grandiose about it like the sample on it is beautiful i absolutely love the sample but i just remember like yo this shit is dope i'm in the back of my uncle's cutlass like bobbing my head like he introduced me to a lot of shit my uncle put me on the outcast as well I didn't know who I was listening to. I just remember the CD had this naked woman on it. I was like, oh, okay. But um, my uncle put me onto a lot of that shit. And I've also talked about how my brother put me onto a lot of stuff. My brother introduced me to Nas. And I thought he was the dopest thing I'd ever fucking heard. And then my older cousin introduced me to Jay-Z. And I thought he was fucking dope. And a lot of other stuff like me and my friends discovered on our own. But my brother also put me on the Snoop Dogg and uh, and Dr. Dre as well. Well, not so much Dre because I was familiar with Dre and Cube from NWA. But my brother was like, no, you should hear this guy named Snoop Doggy Dog. And then like when I heard Snoop on uh, Nothing But A G Thing, like one, two, three into the foe, like that's probably... They often have these debates on Twitter about what are the best opening bars in hip-hop history. It's very simple, but... What Snoop did on G-Thing cannot be underappreciated. It's probably some of the best opening bars in hip-hop, in my opinion. In my humble opinion. Um, so yeah, this this album finds me at a time where I kind of... My personality really started to jump out. You know, um, where at the age of eight, it was all about comic books and playing baseball and stuff like that. I spent like my full days in the park and playing basketball all of these things were happening at this time and i'm starting to discover you know music as a whole and we're talking about me coming up on the age of eight months later i think i started playing the drums that fall so you know this is all happening to me at the same time so i'm discovering who i am and who i'm gonna be for the rest of my life and we're talking this is 30 fucking years ago 
and the same person I was then, I'm very much the same guy now. Obviously, there's maturity and things like that, and I can grow a beard, which is kind of cool, but um, I'm still little Derek Jackson from, you know, University University City, Missouri. I still love the St. Louis Cardinals. I still love the New York Yankees and the New York Mets. I still love blues hockey. Um, I still read comic books. I still watch cartoons. I've added more to the repertoire, but like the base of the shit that was there when I was eight years old is still there today. And a lot of it starts with the music I listen to. So the album was met with acclaim from professional music critics and the hip hop community on release and was eventually certified gold in the United States. His recognition has extended over the years as it is widely regarded as a central album in alternative hip hop with its unconventional production and lyricism. It's also credited for influencing many artists in both hip hop and R&B. In a commemorative article for XXL, Michael Blair wrote that People's Instinctive Travels and Paths of Rhythm was immensely groundbreaking and will eternally maintain its relevance within the culture and construction of hip-hop, which I would say is 100% true. I listened to um, Too High to Riot by Boss the other day, which in my opinion is one of the best... I'm sorry, I'm moving the microphone around and I know I shouldn't do that. should have had this settled before I started recording, but whatever. Um, Two Out of Riot came out in spring of 2016. It was in that run that was like that and the untitled stuff, all the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor from, um, not Good Kid Mad City, but to Pimp a Butterfly. So all the the records that didn't make the final pressing of it. And shout out to LeBron, by the way, because Bron, uh, tweeted Top, who is, um, the head of basically the CEO of Top Dog Entertainment and uh, he was like, yo, can we get those those Kendrick records that didn't make the final album? And then, you know, Top was like, all right, I got you. And uh, well, I think like a couple of weeks later, we got that like packaged in a project together. So we got that. We got Boss, Too How to Ride. And we also got Collie Grove, which is a um, collective album between 2 Chains and Lil Wayne. And at this time, like Wayne really needed that. So you got to shout out Chains for that. Um dedication is the first song on the album and and two chains just talks about how integral and important that wayne was to his career and things like that um but yeah so boss was out at that same time and all those records are really really good but i found myself uh i played too high to ride from beginning to end in my car the other day and then uh actually yesterday i listened to it from beginning to end again I still think it's one of the best albums I've heard. Now, 2016, Boss kind of flies under the radar. Radar. He signed to Dreamville, which is J. Cole's label, and they're uh, they're distributed through Interscope. He kind of flies under the, the radar, right? But he makes really dope fucking music. But in the production of the album and the way that he rapped, I heard like a lot of Tribe influences. I was like, this is crazy because I'm such a big fucking Tribe fan, and I didn't pick up on this earlier, but you have to remember, Boss, this came out in the spring of 2016 and Fife passed away March of 2016. So at the same time, I'm still like really fucked up because one of my favorite artists just, you know, he Fife had been battling diabetes since the 90s. He found out. I think he found out during the early production of the low end theory that he was diabetic, and I think he's like 19 or 20 at that time. Right. Um, and then one of his best rhymes, um, on Midnight Marauders, um, Mr. Energetic, who me sound pathetic. When's the last time you heard a funky diabetic? You know, it, it was something he, like, he had to battle from basically 19 to, in, to his forties. Right. And then it eventually took him out, which sucks. And when he passed away, it was something I took very serious because diabetes is actually very prevalent on both sides of my family. So, uh, but at least, like I said, there was this dark cloud over hip hop, in my opinion, during that time. It was, but it was a great time for music, I think. So you had those records and then actually Drake put out views at the very end of April. So that was a good time as well. But, you know, I was consuming a lot of music and, um, at the same time I was actually consuming a lot of podcast content as well, um, but I, I guess I never tripped off it at the time because I was in the moment living with the album. But I, now that I listen to it, I'm just like, wow, this like this sounds like something Tribe could have made. Or it sounds like, you know, Boss heavily influenced by Tribe. Now, the funny thing is, when you think about it, 
tribe primarily. Ali is from uh, Brooklyn. Tip, Fife, and Jerobi are all from Queens, right? So basically, the greater, the greater, uh, and also Consequence, who is Q-Tip's younger cousin, who started to appear on tribe stuff and be recognized as a member uh, during Beats, Rhymes, and Lives. Uh, Beats, Rhymes, and Life, and now Consequence. He's kind of had some back and forth stuff with him and Kanye about what was going on financially with his situation with good music and uh, you know it's they seem it seems that they've actually resolved those issues and i'm happy to hear that you know i wish kanye would figure out what the fuck is going on with him and um i don't know that's a whole nother thing like i could do a whole fucking three hours on the enigma that is kanye west but i still have to respect him because he's a gemini and i'm a gemini and we're widely regarded as some of the most creative people on earth i'm not talking myself but i do think i'm super creative and others do too but you know we're talking me uh kanye big Pac, a lot of us gemini like you know we're artists and we're really sensitive about our shit we also tend to wear our heart on our sleeves as well so it's like Jim and I are crazy fucking people i'll say that i'm definitely riding the line between between uh genius and insanity like very very often and i'm also very fucking meticulous so like something i loved yesterday i'll hear it like two days from now i'll be like what the fuck was i thinking when i started this and i'm actually kind of going through that right now in the production process of this album for a friend so i don't know but anyway yeah boss is from queens and so are the the majority of a tribe called quest so when you think about it like oh shit it makes sense that he would be heavily fucking influenced by what tribe did so i found that very uh very interesting so you still again two out of ride came out in 2016 and uh people's instinctive travels and path of rhythm was uh april of 1990 so here we are 26 later 26 years later and you still hear like little bits of influence by what tribe did you know at this point 30 fucking years ago so this album again it means so much to me um they now <laughs> as far as the three of these albums i'm gonna discuss this one the low end theory and midnight marauders i would probably say this is the weakest of the three of them but again this is their debut album a really good artist or band group whatever you're supposed to grow with each album and you hear the growth because this is good the low end theory is great midnight marauders is fucking fantastic they got better each time out. Um, so, um, several years, you know, prior to recording People's Instinctive Travels and Passive Rhythm, group member Q-Tip created much of the album's production on pause tapes when he was in the 10th grade. Um, this story is really fucking dope. Um, Jerobi told this in the documentary, which is actually called Beats, Rhymes, and Life, The Instinctive Travel, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest. It was done by Michael Rapp- Rappaport. It came out in 2011. It's actually really, really fucking good. Uh, it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. It features a lot of the members of the Native Tongues. So you get to see Paz, uh, Dave, and Mace of A Tribe Called Quest. You see Moni Love. You see uh, Red Alert. Um, you know, that was a hell of a collective. Like, you know, I guess if you look at the most famous member of the Native Tongues, if you look back now, it has to be Queen Latifah, I would say, because she's, you know she's just not dana from jersey anymore she's queen fucking latifah she's as big as they fucking come but um jerobi tells a story about tip making pause tapes and this is before he had a sampler and stuff like that so he would run the record and find like the exact drum loop he wanted or the horns that he wanted or something like that and he'd have one finger on pause and one finger on record and he'd record pause it loop the record back around unpause it record again pause loop the record back around and keep doing that till you had like three fucking minutes and this is before we had samplers it's a lot easier now when i'm creating stuff like i can do it digitally so if i find a sound i like um it's just easy to loop again during quarantine i was just like i'm gonna figure out what the fuck i'm gonna do because idle hands are the devil's playground and if i don't keep myself busy there's no telling what kind of stupid shit i can get into um so I was like, hey, why not learn another fucking instrument? So I started trying to teach myself the guitar during quarantine. It hasn't gone exactly great, but I only had so much time before 
you know, we were granted clemency to actually get back to filming the, you know, independent film that I was executive producing or still am executive producing. I'm sorry. We're in post-production now. So, um, anyway, um, so it's not like I was great at the guitar. I learned enough and taught myself enough that I could play like this four bar stanza and it sounded really good. So I recorded it. And then what did I, I did at that point, I fucking looped it up three minutes and then I had a whole fucking song and then I went back and I added like ambient sounds after that and stuff like that and we haven't recorded anything to it yet and I whatever we do put with it I think it's going to be fucking phenomenal um I'm hoping to maybe work on that in a recording session we have coming up so we'll see how that goes but yeah you know um tip making pause tapes at 15 fucking years old is insane like people don't realize that he wrote Benita Applebaum like when he was in the ninth fucking grade. And it didn't, the song didn't come out till he like graduated high school. Like, he's a fucking genius. And also, by that, Benita Applebaum is like the first song where we're talking about a girl's ass. Like, Q tip coined the original term for like a girl having a fat ass back in the 90s. Like, now it's just like, yo, Shorty's ass is dumb, fat, or something like that. But back then, you'd be like, yo, Benita, come here. Like, that was the way, like, you know, and it's. And being the father of a little girl, it's not exactly right to say that. But have I not said that to women? Hell yes, I have. Like, am I very, like, vocal about the fact that I like ass and hips? Hell yes, I am. That's just me. Shout out to Tip for doing that. Like, but remember, and he was fucking 14 years old when he wrote that song. And that still blows my mind till today. I wrote a song at, like, 12. I don't know, even know where the fuck the the notebook is like by the time I was 14 I probably lost the notebook so like the very first song I wrote I don't even know where the fuck it is and at 12 years old it sounded good but now like I would have to like chop that shit up and like rearrange stuff like that I didn't understand music to that extent because I was just a fucking drummer then and then I started playing the cello I learned the cello in two weeks when I was 12 years old and then I learned the trumpet the year later I didn't understand like nobody taught me like what you know, bars were and like, well, I knew what bars were, but I didn't know that in hip hop, the standard verse was 16 bars. And then you have an eight bar hook. And then when you're talking popular music, pop, you want your verses to be about eight bars of eight to four to eight bar chorus, you know, where that's why it's repeated because, well, usually about four bars. So then you repeat it and then your bridge four to eight bars, usually about eight. And then you come back around like song structure is very, very important. And um, people don't realize the reason you know, you always know where the hook, like you may not know the words to the verse, but you know where the hook is supposed to come in because you've listened to so much music and it's ingrained in you that this is 16 bars. You don't know it and you're not counting the fucking bars in your head, but you know exactly where the hook should come in if the song is structured correctly. But um, yeah, Tip would do that. Like, and think about it, we're talking four bars of a drum loop or four bars of a horn loop or strings or something like that pause record pause record and then he had to take that shit off cassette tapes and then structure it together when we make when we produce things now like you want the producer to be there at the session so they can track it out for you because they know exactly where each sound is supposed to go i don't let anybody record anything to anything that i created without letting me be in the session because i'm gonna be like hey no that's not where that fucking horn goes you need to move that back two bars or something like that and again, I'm super fucking meticulous, so I, I just can't, like, it's like in um the Five Heartbeats where they're at the very first show, or no, I think it was like one of the second shows or something in the film, like, they had the house piano player playing, and he just couldn't get it right, and Robert Townsend was like, yo, step it up, step up the tempo, the guy's like, whatever, and then he kicked him off, the, like, he was like, this is my music, and he's ruining it, and he kicked the guy off the fucking piano, and then I remember... I remember Kanye being on TRL and they played some of um, late registration over like the PA in the room. And he was like, I feel like Robert Townsend in five heartbeats. Like this is my music and you're destroying it. Certain things are not meant to be heard on your earbuds. Certain things should be heard in your car speakers or something like that or a surround sound system. And that is all attributed to how the the project is mixed. Q-Tip, of course, produced this shit, so he knew how it was supposed to sound, and that's why he mainly mixed that stuff, and that's why he sat with guys like Bob Power, you know, and when Tip would sample, 
Bob Power will want to take the grittiness out of the sample. And like when it got to, I think it was Midnight Marauders, Tip was like, no, leave that shit in. I want it to sound like that. And when I think back to 90s hip hop, when I'm producing something, I'm like, don't take the scratches out. I want them to feel that fucking vinyl because I want it to feel like golden era hip hop. Don't fuck with the horns. I don't want the horns clean. I want the horns to be dirty as fuck. I want it to feel like a dirty fucking jazz club. And I think Q-Tip was the same way, but just the thought that he sat there making fucking pause tapes is fucking insane. He wouldn't have his first studio experience till a couple of years later while he was in high school and he was working with the Jungle Brothers on their debut album, which was Straight Out the Jungle. That came out in 1988. I was in the record store um, a couple of weeks ago when I saw Straight Out the Jungle and part of me was like, I should buy this. And then part of me was like, nah, I don't worry about it. And with my dumb fucking luck, the next time I go back, it probably won't be there, but whatever. Um, so, you know, this is the first time he's in a studio. So this was a learning experience, but he actually acquired more recording and producing knowledge, just being present there. And then also being present at the sessions for De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, which again is regarded as one of the greatest hip hop albums of all time. This is how the native tongues formed. They were all in this same recording studio. Like Tribe would be in one room, Daylight's in the next room, Jungle Brothers in the next room, and they all started just talking and sharing ideas. And then next thing you know, they're the greatest fucking collective in, you know, hip hop at that time. Like and they they start hanging out at each other's sessions and parties and stuff like that. Like people Busta Rhymes is a legend, right? He had his first jump off for real on Scenario, which is the last song on the low end theory. Like Busta's rhyme on, on on scenario is insane. Like, and Dinko and Charlie were on the song as well. Nobody remembers the other two members of Leaders of the New School. Busta Rhymes was the standout, and that's why he had solo success after they had issues as a group. But like, you can widely attribute his success to a tribe called Quest, and they consider him an honorary member of the fucking group. Um, so, but Tip just being there, he would acquire all this knowledge on production and recording. Um, recording engineer Shane Faber taught Q-Tip how to use equipment. He, uh, used the EMU SP-1200, which is, like, if I see an SP-1200, I'll start fucking crying. It's, like, the pinnacle of, um, of, like, producing in hip-hop. It's just, like, it's, like, the fucking holy grail. Um, he also used an S950 as well. And then uh, he was introduced to Paul, which is the legend, Large Professor, Extra P, Uncle P, whatever you want to fucking call him. Large Professor is... My reverence for, for Large Professor, I can't even... He's so important to hip-hop. Um, Large Professor, like, we got Nas because of Large Professor, right? Like, even even Jay, in a fucking diss song, Jay said it about Nas. Like, I showed you your first tech on tour uh, with Large Professor. Now I hear your album about your techs on the dresser. Like, we cannot understate how important Large Professor is to hip-hop as well. But um, it was uh, Paul that taught him how to use other equipment. And uh, he would take all that knowledge between the Jungle Brothers sessions, Three Feet High and Rising, uh, Shane Faber, and sitting with large professor he pieced that stuff together and he basically created and expanded upon the pause tapes that he had created for people's instinctive travels so um initially record labels weren't that nobody would sign a tribe called quest they were very unconventional their image you know they like again dashikis and kente cloths and stuff like that um but you have to credit de la soul with that because they were the hip-hop hippies and the whole Daisy Age and the love movement and all that stuff. Like, if De La Soul doesn't blow with Three Feet High and Rising, I fear that we never, ever get to hear a Tribe Call Quest. And we don't get to hear the contrast in the voices of Tip and, and Fife. Like, Quest Love said it, Tip is very smooth. Fife is very hype. Like, it, and, and, and Fife is like gritty and street. And Q-Tip... And these are the words of the late, great Chris Lighty. Q-Tip is fucking esoteric and he's on the moon. And then he'll have you like thinking about some crazy shit. And then Fife will bring your ass right back down to the hood, back to earth. Um, but again, had De La Soul not hit with me, myself and I, 
and plug tuning and the rest of Three Feet High and Rising, we would have never heard Tribe Call Quest. And it would be an absolute fucking disservice to the ears of the public because what, tri- I, what Tribe means to me, I, I don't even know if I have the words, right? Because they're so fucking important. Like, a- at least three times a week, I still listen to Midnight Marauders. And there was a period where I listened to the low end theory. And I'm not talking like, oh, when I was a kid. And like, I remember, like, we're sitting here right before the election, and I remember Obama going into his second term, the election against Mitt Romney, and I listened to the low-end theory, like, every day for, like, three weeks straight. It it still is one of my favorite fucking... All, but, again, that's why we're here, because these albums mean so fucking much to me. So, um... Q-Tip was on Three Feet High and Rising. He was also on Straight Out the Jungle. Initially, the the name of the group was called Quest. That's a very, very, very funny thing. Uh, I think it was the session for Black is Black. Q-Tip was, you know, like, you know how rappers get on, like, yo, it's your boy or whatever, whatever. So Q-Tip is on there, and Africa, he goes in the booth, and Africa's like, say your name. Make sure you say your name so these people know who you are. And he was like, I'm Q-Tip. And he's like, I'm from a group called Quest. And Africa told the engineer, erase the tape. And he told him to do it over. And he said, you need to say, I'm from a tribe called Quest. And the name just fucking stuck. And that's, and there's even that joke in one of the episodes of the Boondocks where Cat Williams plays the pimp. And he's like, my name is a pimp named Slickback. And Grandpa was like, oh, okay, Mr. Slickback. He's like, no. It's a pimp named Slickback. You say the whole thing just like a tribe called Quest. So, you know, that was one of those situations where sometimes your name almost chooses you and it just famously stuck. So the group hired Red Alert as their manager and they started shopping their demo to several uh, several labels. They signed a contract with Jive Records in 89. So they immediately start working on the album. They re- uh, began recording in late 1989 and finished three months later in early of 1990. Uh, the first two songs recorded were Public Enemy and Benita Applebaum. And of course, like I said, my reverence for Benita Applebaum cannot be understated. My best friend, he was the first of, uh, our group to have kids. And, um, when his wife, shout out to Jessica and Anthony, I love you both. Uh, when his wife was pregnant, he would put Benita Applebaum on his iPod, plug in big enough headphones to put on her stomach, and he would play it on a fucking loop. And... His son, Adrian, Adrian's got to be, it's like, oh, five. So, what is he, 13 now? No, what am I saying? He's 15, I'm sorry. He's like 14 or 15. Uh, That was the very first song that little Adrian heard. Like, he heard Benita Applebaum on a fucking loop. And it was so crazy, when you would call Anthony's cell phone, he had Benita on his voicemail. And we're talking, this is oh, five. Like, this is the era where Jay-Z had just retired briefly after the Black Album. 50 Cent and G-Unit were big as fuck. Uh, T.I. was making his way through. Jeezy was making his way through. But, like, we were still listening to Tribe very fucking heavily. Um, so, as far as the recording of the album, the group chose Cali Up Studios as their uh, primary studio. It was re- renowned to uh, promote artistic freedom. You didn't have too many people fucking with you and saying, oh, you should do this like this. Or you should say this line like this and this, that, and that. And it's like... When I produce a session, I want to give the artist the most freedom. And I'll be like, you did a take your way. I want you to do a take my way. And then we'll play it and we'll figure out which way, which way sounds better. And, you know, usually the artist will allow me the freedom to produce them and coach them through the session, which is really fucking awesome. Um, Jungle Brothers, Queen Latifah, Prince Paul with De La Soul, and Stetsa Sonic. Remember, Prince Paul is a legend. He was he is responsible for De La, and he was a member of Stetsa Sonic, but he was the youngest member, and he was the producer, so a lot of people didn't give him a lot of credit, but around the way, he was still known as a big deal, because he's still in high school when Stetsa Sonic broke, and then um, he got with... <laughs> the funny thing about De La is, like, those three guys, they met in detention in summer school no they met in summer school it wasn't detention um pos was i think in the 12th grade dave was in the 11th and mace was a freshman right so and paul was just this guy from around the way uh he was weird he was kind of nerdy but he's responsible for stetsasonic so like everybody would like you know paul lend me your ear 
what do you that everybody would let him listen to their stuff and um you know of course he got with daylight and he did fucking phenomenal things and um you know him and tip formed a relationship as well because a lot of the background stuff it mainly was tip and ali and a lot just a lot of q-tip i think tip is a genius he really is and at the pharrell said it in the documentary that as a producer that we're all sons of his and we really are like when i listen to loops and when i'm picking something i was like that part sounds really cool those drums sound really cool like this is something tip hop would you know q-tip would do and pharrell's like you know himself kanye everybody we're all sons of q-tip he was the first one like he literally is the lord of what the fuck we do in this hip-hop industry like and me on a very very minute like minuscule fucking level because nobody knows who i am that's yet that's as of yet you're gonna know but um we all took cues from q-tip he picks the best fucking loops uh and jay dilla as well rest in peace to dilla but um you know they were all working and recording new music in separate rooms which was very exciting and uh q-tip said that basically we were kind of left to our own devices it was just a great environment uh, conductive for creating we didn't have cell phones we didn't have the internet we didn't have a bunch of things to tear at us when we got to the studio the specific job was to make music there was no tv in there it was all instruments and speakers it was just music um Tip and Ali would listen to records several seconds at a time and rework them in relationship with other records and stuff like that. That's why a lot of Tribe stuff, you hear multiple samples in one record because they're building on something. And then the scratching you hear, that's all Ali. Um, I think that he, I would say DJ Premier has the best scratches in hip hop. I would definitely give that to Primo. And then I would say Ali Shahid Muhammad after that. Um, And... But everything other than that, uh, Q-Tip ha- handled everything else with production, including the sampling and the mixing. He picked, again, he picks out the best fucking loops. Um, there's claims that, you know, we all helped put the album together. Q-Tip was the only group member present at every recording session. Uh, and this came directly from Fife. He said, I-, I was being ignorant on that first album. That's why I was only on a couple of tracks. I was hardly around. I would rather have hung out with my boys in the street and got my hustle on rather than gone in the studio. I wasn't even on the contract for the first album. I was thinking me and Jerobi were more like backups for Tip and Ali. But Tip and Ali really wanted me to come through and do my thing. Um, so the album, when it was released, was met with widespread acclaim from critics. Uh, Ian McCann from NME wrote that A Tribe Called Quest put no feet in the wrong place here. This is not rap. It's near perfection. Entertainment Weekly's Greg Sandow comment, comment, uh, commented. I can't talk today. I'm sorry. Uh, that on the album, rather than defining Afrocentric living, the group more or less exemplifies it with no fuss at all. Robert Tenzillo from Chicago Tribune stated that the album avoids the gimmicky and circus atmosphere of the group's contemporaries while focusing solely on the music. Writing for the Los Angeles Times, Dennis Hunt called the album fascinating and wrote that these songs lope along in a quirky, jazz-like space. They're intriguingly non-linear and quite provocative, even though their meaning is somewhat elusive. In an enthusiastic review, the source gave it the first, first, remember, this is the very first five mic rating. If you get a five mic in the source, it is considered a hip hop classic. That is the bar. You want, everybody wants a five mic album from the source. Now that rating doesn't hold up now anymore because the source is a whole fucking mess of a situation. And from my understanding, it may be digital only. I don't think you can actually get a copy of the source from a newsstand anymore. I have to check. Um... But it would be really dope. I don't know if Double X. I know Double XL is gone digital. Um, I may have to subscribe to both of those on my iPad. That would be really cool. Anyway, um, yeah, People's Instinctive Travels got the very first five mic in hip hop history in the source, and we're talking five mic albums. We're talking Nas's Illmatic. Um, what else is a five mic album? There are so many, and they're f- the. They initially did not give the Chronic and the Chronic 2001 five mics upon initial review. And then Dave Mays went back and redid those reviews and gave them both five mic status. Um, The source called it a completely musical and spiritual approach to hip hop as well as a voyage to the land of positive vibrations. And each cut is a new experience. Chuck Eddy from Rolling Stone stated that the real pleasure on people's instinctive travels and paths of rhythm comes from a detailed mesh of instruments and incidental sounds. We went on to say the rappers of A Tribe Called Quest tend to mumble 
and understated monotones that feel self-satisfied, even bored. People's instinctive travels in the past of rhythms has been recognized for widening hip-hop's vocabulary as well as instrumentation and samples within hip-hop music. It has also been recognized for influencing a wide range of acclaimed hip-hop and R&B artists, including Common, D'Angelo, Diggable Planets, Erykah Badu, The Fugees, Jay Dilla, Kendrick Lamar, Mos Def, Outkast, and Kanye West. Pharrell Williams stated, and this is in a documentary, I listen to Benita every day. I'd never heard anything like that in my life. That's where I changed. On another occasion, Williams explained that people's instinctive travels caused a turning point in my life, which made me see that music was art. Again, Pharrell Williams, like, if you thought about, like, if you think about him just as the guy that made the song happy, then, like, Pharrell actually ghost did ghost production on uh, Rump Shaker by Rex and Effects, and that was, like, in 92 or 93, because I was in the fourth or fifth grade when that song came out. Uh, he did ghost production for Teddy Riley. Uh, that whole VA sound, Teddy Riley moved to VA, um, and I think the story goes that Pharrell and Chad were in their high school band, and Teddy Riley's studio was very close to their high school, and they would hear the music through the window and they just went up there to try to intern and then the guy went on like these two guys went on to produce basically every major pop or r&b or hip-hop record in the early 2000s like we're talking i just want to love you by jay-z hollaback youngin by fabulous slave for you by britney spears um what's another neptune song that that you know what that's an interesting conversation and now the research my the gears are spinning in my head so you guys are going to get a, a an episode about the neptunes because what they've given the music industry cannot be fucking understated um but um yeah if this is pharrell like this is pharrell who's a fucking god you know in 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 popular music if he's saying this about tribe then like just think about the impact that these guys had. And that noise is me taking my watch off, by the way. Um, <clears throat> John Bush of All Music called People's Instinctive Travels and the Past of Rhythm, rhythm the quite beginning of a re- revolution in non-commercial hip-hop. Pitchfork's Chris X stated with the album, the group created and refined a template for 90s hip-hop that was street astute, wordly, and more inspirational than aspirational. In a, com- a commemorative art- article for XXL, Michael Blair wrote, What a Tribe Called Quest ultimately became the pioneers of and was on full display throughout the production on their debut album was a certain proficiency in illustrating and honoring a diverse array of genres that preceded them. And what is mostly attributed to Q-Tip's deep appreciation and understanding of those definitive genres, Tribe's sound was perpetually laced with elements of jazz, soul, R&B, and funk. Blair concluded that People's Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm was immensely groundbreaking and will eternally maintain its relevance within the culture and construction of hip-hop hip-hop journalist harry allen called the album a big turning point in hip-hop where you didn't have to be tough this is true you have to remember nwa was out at this time and they went on mtv with ak-47s and assault rifles riding around the back of a fucking pickup truck in la and they let you know that gang culture and guns were very fucking real before like around that time the hardest rapper on the east coast is probably schooly d and psa like psk to me isn't a super street record but for that time it was now when you compare that shit to what nwa was doing that shit sounds like romper room but you know tribe were the first artists who made it where you didn't have to be tough to be cool in hip-hop uh, Tribe Called Quest member Ali Shaheed Muhammad further elaborated that LL Cool J, Big Daddy Kane, KRS, when NWA, even Public Enemy, had a tough guy image. With Public Enemy, I would say the P was more social conscious. Uh, Chuck D never claimed to be a, a tough dude. Uh, Flavor Flav is not looked at as a tough dude. Some people looked at him as the clown prince of hip-hop. But Chuck D, whether you think he's tough or not, uh, you don't want to run up on Chuck D in a dark alley at night. I'll say that. He's probably going to fuck you up. And that's even Chuck D. If Jay-Z is 50-something, Chuck D's got to be pushing 60. And I believe that Chuck D would beat the skin off of a couple people. That's all I'm saying. Um, it was this bravado at the time that all the hip-hop artists had. People's Instinctive Travels wasn't any of that. We weren't trying to be tough guys. It was about having fun, being lighthearted, 
being witty, being poetic, just being good with one another. That's what we presented, just to be, just exist. Be comfortable in your own skin. People's Instinctive Travels was about celebrating you, whoever you are. Um, and essentially, that's all there is to it. It's an album about diversity. It's an album about, you know, I think it, it obviously, there's a song called Youthful Expression on the album. But uh, I think it's it's an album, if you're like 18 years old and you're just now, you're out of high school and you're discovering the world and... They always say that the best music of your lifetime is the stuff you started listening to about the age of age of 18 and 19 when you became really, really conscious of the music and stuff like that. Um, unless you're like a, a kid that grew up in music, like myself, again, I played the drums, trumpet, and cello all before 16. So, um, so like my first training was like on a lot of like orchestra type stuff. And I was also in choir and stuff as well. So... Um, but this album was there when I was eight years old, so it's ten years early for me. Um, if I listened to it at eighteen years old, it would have been like the soundtrack for my summer. Um, whatever. I just remember that summer when I turned eighteen, like listening to a lot of big timers, a lot of Jay Z. Um, you know, Wayne is like three months younger than I am. His birthday is September. So, like, I remember listening to a lot of Lil Wayne at, like, 17, 18 years old. The Block is Hot was, like, one of those albums I played, like, for a full year straight. The Hot Boys and stuff like that. I just imagine what it would, what it, what my life would have been like if this album came out at the time I was turning 18 years old. It would have been very, very fucking important to me. Um, but even still, it came out in April of 1990, and here we are in um, October of 2020, and it's still probably one of the most important albums in my lifetime by far. So um, it deserved its proper place. Like if I had a mantle for hip hop, it's definitely going up there. I think the first three tribe tribe albums are up there. Um, the Blueprint by Jay Z is definitely up there. Reasonable Doubt by Jay Z is up there. The Black Album by Jay Z is up there. Um, I would even put Hard Knock Life up there as well. That album is a seminal classic as well. Like. This is a guy who, um, Reasonable Doubt, phenomenal, but it was an independent album. But it, it made people listen, and it, it got them the partnership with Def Jam. And um, after they did the first album under Def Jam, you know, Leo was like, I don't know if we signed the right guy. He's kind of cold. And uh, Dame Dash tells the story of 45 King. Somebody, no, somebody was mixing records, and a DJ played, they were playing something, and they played the Annie sample over it, and, and he's, they were on tour. They were on the Bad Boy tour. It was 97. I'll actually never forget this. And Dame ran to the DJ booth and was like, yo, who did that record? And the DJ was like, 45 Kings. And he called up 45 Kings. He was like, I need that Annie record. And he was like, somebody else wants it. And Dame told him, I will bring you $10,000 in a brown paper bag right now if you let me have that record. And they gave it to Jay. Jay recorded it. Lior told them this is not a hit and it's going to be one of the biggest failures of your career. And Dame said, I knew at that point to never listen to Lior. Hard Knock Life comes out. The album sells four million. Jay-Z becomes the Jay-Z that the rest of you guys know him as. But I've known about him since, you know, in my lifetime, since like 93 or 94. But like, remember, he had to give up all the publishing. Like they weren't going to clear that sample unless he agreed to give them 100 percent of the publishing. He took a bet. He bet on himself and he won because he sold four million off that album and he became a hip hop mainstay and he became a mainstream artist. I'm sorry. The guy's now married to Beyonce and is one of the, the most successful businessmen, you know, the world over. He bet on him fucking self. If I sampled a record and the original writer and publisher of the record said, hey, you can use it, but we want 100 percent. I don't know. I think I'd take the fucking sample out like I'm doing the hard work. You wrote the song. I'll give you that. But like, do you really deserve 100%? Like Jay-Z makes no royalties off that song. No royalties at all. But you know, whatever. He bet on himself and it worked. And I don't know how the fuck I got into that conversation. But again, these are the albums that would be on like the hip hop mantle for me. I feel like the first two Biggie albums are up there. Uh, the last two Pac albums, um, All Eyes On Me. Uh, actually, the last three. Uh, Me Against the World, All Eyes on Me, and uh, Machiavelli are all on there. Um, 
there's a lot of other albums on there, but Tribe is on there three fucking times. You know, People's Instinctive Travels, The Low End Theory, and Midnight Marauders. So the review scores uh, for the album, All Music gave it, what is that? Four and a half out of five stars. Chicago Tribune gave it three. Uh, uh, Chicago Tribune gave it three and a half out of four. Entertainment Weekly gave it an A minus. NME gave it nine out of ten. Pitchfork ten out of ten. Rolling Stone gave it three out of five stars. That's insane. But the Rolling Stone Album Guide gave it four out of five stars. So I don't know. The source, of course, support perfect five out of five. The elusive five mics. Uh, Spin Magazine gave it four out of five, and the Village Voice gave it a, ble- a B plus. Um, Cameron Adams, which is an Australian publication, named it um, from 11 to 100 of 100 must-have albums. This was in the year 2013. The Best, which is a publication out of Germany. Uh, the Best Albums of the Year, 1990, ranked number four. Um, Ego Trip, um, in 1999, of Hip Hop's 25 Greatest Albums by Year from 1980 to 1998. This was number nine on their list. Entertainment Weekly, the best 100 albums from 1983 to 2008. This was number 18 on that list. Um, The Source, 100 best rap albums of all time. It's on there. Uh, The Village Voice, best albums of the year of 1990s. uh, 1990, it's on there at number 18. Double XL, 40 years of hip hop, the top five albums by year. It's on there as well. So these are just random accolades and stuff like that. Um, if you've never heard People's Instinctive Travels in the Past with Rhythm, I would definitely urge you to go listen to that album. Again, to me, it is an absolute hip-hop masterpiece. Um, and it just... It's groundbreaking, but this is just the very fucking beginning when you talk about A Tribe Called Quest. As I stated, they got better with each album. This is good. The Low End Theory is great. And Midnight Marauders is fucking fantastic. And that's the best run, in my opinion, in the history of hip-hop for any group. Any group. Because if I put it up against, like, Jay-Z's first three albums, Reasonable Doubt, In My Lifetime, which is actually a really good fucking album. Def Jam just under-promoted that album. And then Hard Knock Life, that's a great fucking way to start. If I put it up against Nas's Illmatic, It Was Written, and... um. Jesus Christ, what is the uh what is the third Nas album? I get fucking the title escapes me for some reason right now, but I feel like those are three good albums as well. Um if you put it up against eh, eh, Actually, you could put it up against Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid Mad City, unless you want to add Section 80 because that was technically an independent album. I don't know. But if we're talk, if we add reasonable doubt, then I guess we have to add Good Kid, Mad or Section Eighty. So Section Eighty, Good Kid, Mad City, Into Pimper Butterfly, or if you just wanted to go with the major label re- releases, Good Kid, Mad City, To Pimper Butterfly, and Damn, Kendrick is in that same conversation. Um, but again, if you've never heard this album, I urge you to go to the streaming service of your choice and listen to this album from front to back. Push It Along, again, is the perfect way to set off the album. It's And it's very, like, mystic. The first thing you hear are just, like, these ambient sounds. And there's, like, a baby crying. And also, they introduced the theme of having, um, like, a guide for the album. You know, so I, the Jerobi guides you down this album. And he, like, introduce, introduces you to the members of the group. And then um, they have the, on Midnight Marauders, they have the tour guide. Like, so that was a big deal, too. So, um... I would say Midnight Marauders is more of a, a conceptual album than I wouldn't call this a conceptual album, but I would definitely call it Midnight Marauders. And speaking of conceptual albums, in my opinion, the best two conceptual albums I've ever heard is uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club uh, by the Beatles. That's widely recognized as the first conceptual album. And then I would have to say Good Kid, Mad City by Kendrick Lamar. And people keep asking me, well, why do you call it a concept album? It Essentially, it's about the day in the life of a kid from Compton. So it is a concept. There, there's a central theme. It's how does he survive through this day? You know, he wants to go meet up with this girl he met at a party. He wants to go hang out with his friends and freestyle and smoke. One of his friends ends up getting shot. You know, his parents, like, when you listen to Good Kid, Mad City, those voicemails, that's actually from his mom and dad. Those are not actors. Those are actually Kendrick Lamar's parents. 
Um, but I think that when we talk about concept albums, I think those two really hit the mark. And then when you talk about concept songs, Nas, I gave you power where he was a gun. And then Tupac flipped it months later with me and my girlfriend with the girlfriend was his gun. So, uh, everybody borrows from somebody else in music. It's, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, but again, this particular album, if you haven't heard it, I urge you again to go to your, your streaming service of choice and listen to this album. Um, if anybody has a copy of it or knows anybody that has a copy on vinyl, I'm still looking for one. Um, it's still escaping me and somebody stole my copy of the low end theory on vinyl. So if you could help a brother out, I'd definitely appreciate it. Anyway, this is Derek. The next episodes will follow, uh, over the next two weeks. I want to thank you very much. Tell your friends, patreon.com slash all our nonsense. Peace out.